Welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast, where I finally found my webcam. Apparently, I shoved it in a shoe. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And so now I look normal again. The room is sort of coming back together, but not really. I've got extra computers laying around, but to Devin. It's almost Christmas, man. It is almost Christmas. What have you been up to? I, I hear about 3D printers. I've been talking to you <laughs> off and on about that. Uh, let's let's go into that oh, real quick. Really? Okay. Um, yeah, I, I got a kit. For me, 3D printers, I've been a fan of electronics, much, much like uh, DJ over here, uh, though I haven't made a career out of it by any means. But I've always been interested in electronics and 3D printing. I'm not out to, like, try to, like, make money or become a master of 3d printing or anything like that for me it's just something fun where i'm like oh hey i could use a bracket and then make a bracket and it doesn't need to be clean or look super awesome or accurate it's just kind of like you know a way for me to fit uh physical things together kind of like the same way that sometimes i'll take um different apis from android and uh, hue lights or something like that and i you know duct tape them together uh, to me, a 3D printer, I imagine being like uh, my own duct tape for the physical world. So, though the real duct tape of that, I think, is called welding. But in any <laughs> case, that's, uh, that, I mean, that's probably another skill I'd like to pick up somewhere. I saw some classes on Groupon I almost pulled the trigger on for uh, starting to learn how to weld. Uh, but yeah, I've been doing that. And uh, along with being buried in a ton of work this week, uh, one, one re- Christmas regret I already have is uh, I bought a lens for myself for Christmas, and it turned out to be a piece of crap. What and lens so did you buy? I bought a uh, the Super Zoom uh, 14 to 140, uh, as you can see here. And uh, what's interesting is I, I originally tried to buy the 3.5 to 5.6, and uh, the seller actually sent me the 4.0 to 5.8, which is a big, heavy lens. It's the older version. Uh, but nice build quality, everything else. And I'm like, no, I, I spent the extra money. I want the faster one. So I got the 3.5 to 5.6. Specs aren't everything. Uh, this thing just cannot focus for crap. It just hunts constantly. It is a pain in the butt to use. And meanwhile, the older version, which was much slower, had no problems. It focused as fast as the uh, the 2.8 uh, focal lengths that Lumex also makes or Panasonic, what have you. So, Have you just- tried updating the firmware on it? Yeah, I tried updating the firmware, and maybe like a GH4 would work better because uh, the GH4 is a little bit faster at it than the GH3, but uh, my my GH3 just sits there and hunts, and it's a bit of a pain in the butt, and I'm a little disappointed because, um, you know, it's it's not the most expensive lens. You can pick them up used for 320-ish, maybe 280-ish. Um <laughs> So it's not it's not the most expensive lens, but I wanted a lens I could use outdoors. I kind of had some reach to it too, and was kind of a convenient lens where I'm like, ah, if I'm really up against the wall, I can put one lens on my camera, and not carry around other lenses, and kind of get something done at the same time because it does have image stabilization. Um, and 3.5 isn't terribly slow if you're outside. So I don't know, man. The 75, I think it's the what is it, the 75 millimeter f 1.8. I yeah, want, I want to say that too. You and your primes. Thing. I love that lens for everything. Uh, you know, slap a ND on there, and you can shoot out in the daylight. Seventy five's pretty decent reach. That's about one fifty on a uh, crop sensor camera. Well, not crop sensor, actually, <laughs> micro four thirds. Man, where is my brain today? Um, yep. myself. Check this out, though. I, I know I've already talked about the Chromecast audio, but I've got another one in my collection now. Why do I need to, you ask? Well, Google just updated the firmware uh, on the Chromecast, so now you can simulcast to multiple Chrome audio 
uh, Chromecast audio devices. So I can put this in multiple stereos in my house and basically have like the poor man's Sono system. And <laughs> right now, if you're not familiar with this, you should definitely check it out. They're running a special on the Chromecast audio. You can get two and you save 15 bucks. So it's $55 for two right there. Definitely worth uh, spending the money on if you want. And they're also offering a special deal where each Chromecast you buy, they provide $20 in Chrome Store, uh, Google Play Store, whatever credits, so you can buy a movie or games or whatever. And in fact, I went and bought a bunch of stuff for my new tablet that I already own on Steam, including World of Goo. Uh, the, uh, shoot, what's the? It's the one where the kid wanders around. And limbo limbo yep limbo <laughs> i knew it and uh i, I think <laughs> I, I, I got one like puzzle game called like the uh, valleys of something valleys mm-hmm. of monuments or something like that but uh those are all games i probably wouldn't have purchased but i got 20 dollars of credits so bam done sold this is great buy them if you need one and the audio is way better than bluetooth trust me on that one i can swear to that now time for the news time for the news Time for the news. All right, first up on the list here, let's go ahead and hit this up because this is pretty cool. Uh, we don't normally see really cheap field monitors. And when we do, you're expecting resolutions of probably 800 by 600 or lower in some cases. But uh, Aperture's got a really sexy new line of monitors. Uh, kind of confusing too. They're naming these after the same uh, labeling as their previous models. This is the VS1 Fine HD. Uh, if you're familiar with the VS1, VS2, and VS3 series, they've been around for a while. Uh, good monitors. I believe they cap out at 1200 by uh, 800 or 1200 by 7 and some change, something like that. Uh, these are 1080p resolution, so 1920 by 1080 7 inch screens. And remarkably, they're IPS and rated at a price of $200 for the VS1 and $400 for the VS2. Now, if these follow the pricing structure that they did with the VS3 through VS1 originals, it will most likely have the same screen, body, frame, and so on, and they'll distinguish Mm -hmm. themselves by specs. Devin, what do you think about a $200 1080p 7-inch screen? I mean, that sounds pretty sexy for the price. That's super, that's super exciting. Uh, that's, uh, for me, it, 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 I know a lot of people like focus speaking, false color. I was all over that. I've got a lily put that's got my false color and focus speaking and everything else. But at the end of the day, if the resolution is there, I find that even with shooting DSLRs and uh, large sensors and shallow depth of field, Really, I can almost always nail my focus just off of a high-resolution image. That's all I need. And so focus peaking is great for really tough situations and what have you, but I could almost see myself just grabbing this thing for 200 because 1080p at that small of a size, if, you're, you know, if, you're, um, if your eyes are good, uh, it depends. I know some people that like focus peaking really helps them because um, you know, they kind of have trouble seeing what is sharp and what isn't. Uh, but for me, I've never had a problem with that. And so that's what I'm all about because at 1080p at this kind of size, you're getting such a large um, or or such a small distance uh, between the pixels and everything else that for me, I'm like, this is like the resolution of paper. It's like super high resolution. This is like kind of like a retina display kind of a thing. So yeah, the DPI on this is uh, 323. So that's pretty dense as far as that's 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 like retina. So for me, I'm like, I, I can I can tell when it's in focus or not, because all the detail is there. 
And I, it's it's normally these monitors are going to be kind of close enough to my face that I'm going to be able to tell right away. So for me, I don't need to spend the extra money for those extra features. Um, though, you know, if you it, like, uh, I don't know if you mentioned, I mean, if you have a camera that has built in focus speaking, you don't really need it on the monitor. Well, there's a few so, things, uh, the VS two and the VS one, um, they're similar to here's the VS three. I've actually used this for quite some time, but like it, it's a good monitor. Uh, they basically, the higher end versions of apertures monitors include a few interesting things. One of those, and that's probably something significant for, uh, black magic pocket shooters is audio level meters via HDMI. So mm, yes. if you are looking for audio level meters for some kind of confirmation on what's going on in the audio <laughs> in your camera, which is pretty frustrating with some of those devices, uh, that's a really interesting or, feature to have. Or the GH3. Like, uh, does uh, it no online or on-screen no, audio meters on no, the GH3? No, right? That's one of the big things they fix when they switch to the GH4. What? Um, and uh, yeah, but the GH3, the audio meters will only stick around for probably about five seconds. And then you got to touch the screen every time if you want to see what those meters are doing. Also, uh, the GH3's interface has probably moves at what I want to say is maybe three FPS or so. So those meters are kind of laggy. The whole interface really? is kind of laggy. Yeah, when, when it's in live view. When you're in menus, it flies. It's fine. But when you're in live view, whether or not I have an external monitor plugged in, uh, the FPS on it just seems slow. And I've done factory resets and tons and stuff. It could be an isolated case with me, but the audio meters just don't move very lively. And there's like five dots or six dots. So you don't get a whole lot of detail either, wow. which is funny because Blackmagic finally added uh, like a year ago, year and a half ago, the audio levels to the Blackmagic Pocket Cinema camera, which was one of the big outlying things, though I don't know who would use a Pocket Cinema camera's audio uh, DAC because those sound awful. But if you did, you had the interface for it. So it's interesting that you bring that up for uh, a camera that that's already been fixed on. Uh, meanwhile, though, for someone like me, it's super useful because, yeah, the the GH3 has decent uh uh, amps, which I actually preamps, which I do use quite often, and to not have constant levels is super annoying. That's half the reason why I got something like the Spectre 4 HD or whatever, and and I'm always using field monitors and stuff like that because having those levels. Uh, is really important if you're a GH3 owner. So. Well, and the other thing that they do with the HDMI audio is because the audio is being sent via the HDMI stream to your camera, and this isn't exclusive, or this isn't for all cameras. There are a few cameras that have exceptions to that. But if you're using something like the G7, for example, you can actually use the headphone jack on your monitor to monitor the audio that your camera is recording because the G7, for example, doesn't have a headphone jack mm -hmm. and you see the levels as well. Um, the GH4 does suffer from some of the things that you're complaining about, including the menu timeouts, but mm -hmm. uh, there, there are ways around it. You get to digging around in the menu and you can keep at least basic functionality and information on. Where I get upset is that the uh, exposure uh, compensation meter goes away after a while. <laughs> And, you know, that's something that I like to see, even if I'm not using it continuously throughout a long take. Um, uh, I'm more of a histogram or waveform kind of guy, so yeah, I'm not so much into your exposure meters. I'm more into a more detailed image of my exposure. I mean, I just like to keep an eye on it because, uh, you know, you can you can tell me I'm bad, but I, I use <laughs> point, point metering. So, you know, that center point is the only thing that's actually giving me anything even remotely accurate. Uh Honestly, for the resolution on this, though, $200 is amazing pricing. Uh, it's probably the most affordable price I've heard of. And this is under $200 is what they're advertising. So I'm guessing we're maybe $179, $189, something like that. Or maybe the ubiquitous uh, $199 
you know, <laughs> I imagine it'll probably be one ninety nine because I see that's that's how things are going. But still, it shows you that the fact too that you're getting an IPS display with the glossy finish and everything else. Um, the, the, that's exactly what you want in one of these kind of screens. The details there because you, you, most of the time you're gonna these come with sun hoods. You're gonna use them with a sun hood. Yeah. So having a glossy eye, uh, kind of finish on it is going to make it easier for you to see the color and the exposure and the detail and everything else if you get that all dialed in. So and even if it doesn't come with one, uh, you know those Velcro things are super cheap and they usually come with stickers and you can put them on any monitor you want. Uh, and they only cost 15 bucks. But. Actually, right here is one of Aperture's, and uh, Aperture's not a sponsor, by the way, but uh, here's one of their screen hoods, and it's very nice, uh, full size, wraps around the monitor. There's a little Velcro tab that goes around the bottom. Uh, I've had the VS3, I think, since its release. Really good monitor. Uh, that one and my small HD DP6 are my pretty much my standard go-to monitors when I do use a monitor on camera. So that is really nice. I'm excited to see monitors coming down into the price of cell phone screens. Uh, mm -hmm. It's been really frustrating over the last couple of years when you see cell phones with 1080p all the way up to QHD level screens. And then <laughs> you don't have that sort of resolution in your field monitors that are, you know, twice the size, seven, eight inches. Uh, the 501 and 502 from small HD both look really nice because they're super thin, petite cell phone size monitors. And now we're getting seven inch monitors with 1080p. I mean, I used to say buy a field monitor and hold on to it for years, but now tech is progressing so fast that, you might, I don't know, maybe these cheap ones are the way to go as opposed to buying something fancy and new. Like this guy, I think I spent 1200 bucks on it a couple of years ago. And yeah. now it's, I mean, they sell for like 300 bucks. So, well, this is, this is exciting too, because this is where it's going to go. The progression. I am going to love seeing this kind of resolution in cheaper field recorders for when you need that you know, backup recording copy or you're doing some kind of 4K high bitrate thing or something like that, or you're going straight to ProRes, whatever the case. But, you know, it, I'm not going to be surprised if at NAB or something like that, we're going to see, you know, some Atomos Ninjas or something like that that start coming out with higher resolution displays. Because obviously, uh, you know, the technology, they're coming down in price. And that's one of the things I've always been iffy about is, there's some cheap uh, external recorders out there, but their screens are always kind of lacking, and that's the part that they're cutting costs on. Have you now uh, seeing... Speaking of that, and I don't mean to cut you completely Go off, for but it. the Blackmagic Design Video ass Assist, I think, was it the Video Assist? Yeah. The five-inch monitor? Yeah, uh, yeah. Is yeah. that actually, like, have you gotten your hands on that by chance or been no. able to see that in the wild? No, I, I don't think it's out yet. Are you sure? <laughs> no, let I, me like, check. <laughs> I'm looking on B&H right now, and, like, I remember yeah. thinking about it and thinking, man, that's a really good price. The resolution on that was uh, a 1080p touchscreen. Uh, I don't right. know if it was IPS. I think it might have been a TFT panel. But mm -hmm. uh, it still looked pretty sexy, and I, I think it even recorded, uh, what, yeah, 10 bit, 10 bit 422 ProRes to yep. a, an SDI. And it would do card. both HDMI and SDI. Yeah, it, all in one spot for $495. Uh, this yep. thing, it looked super sexy. Um, I haven't even been paying very much attention to it. I should probably look into this again and see kind of where it's at. But uh, it appears to be shipping on B&H. There's 17 reviews up, so somebody's got their hands on this guy. I kind of want to play around with it now. It, it's in, Well, and that's what we were looking at before. I mean, when we talked about this before, the thing that I was kind of holding off on was um, as much as it's a minor thing, 
is the batteries. I don't have a lot of Canon batteries lying around, so I'd have to buy batteries specifically to power this guy. Um, unless, of course, I'm going to do some kind of adapter system because it will let you just do 12 volts straight into it. Uh, I imagine, too, looking at it, that um, if I remember right, it, it's going to take those high-end uh, SanDisk SD cards if you want reliable ProRes because ProRes 10-bit is huge. It's flipping huge even if you're only doing 1080p, but especially if you're doing 60p, you're going to need the fastest SD cards you can get your hands on. But the Lexar cards have really come down in price, man. I mean, the 64 gig and 128 gig cards, the UHS Class 2. I don't, I don't touch class... that brand. I don't touch that brand, so I don't know. Oh. I, I need to grab myself a couple. Uh, last I recall, when I was messing with them, they still didn't work the plaque, the pocket cinema camera for shooting raw, which isn't something I always do, but that's always a good test to me on like how reliable is this performance. And so I haven't looked back since then. But the newer Lexar to... cards are they're claiming like 150 meg uh, read speeds in in the 90s uh, write speeds. So I mean, that should be able to sustain regular. Uh, you know, ProRes recording, and uh, the prices are so cheap now on them that it's it's actually uh, sort of a good medium. Where in in previous years, a 128 gig card would set you back what almost 200 bucks. Yeah, about yeah, yeah. So uh, definitely something to look into. I might have to check that out in January <laughs> and play around with the Blackmagic Design uh, Video Assist. So uh, that's on my list. This Aperture Monitor looks pretty sweet. Now let's move on down the line here. We've got a few other things to cover, and actually, I want to credit Devin here because he's the one who uh, populated what? most of the show notes this episode. <laughs> I'm talking about it, but Devin filled it up. Now this is uh, kind of interesting. Uh, there were a lot of complaints right out of the shoot for the Sony FS5. Uh, the F FS5, if you're not familiar, uh, when it first was released, uh, it couldn't output at the same time as recording internal 4K. Uh, they've since released firmware version 1.1, and now you have output as well as internal recording, which is pretty nice. But Devin, uh, you've read through this more than I have. Uh, is there some <laughs> microblocking well, and some I've other been... issues in 4K recording mode? Sure. Uh, on the FS5, I've been looking at it quite a bit because for me... Very sexy, by the, the way. The C300 is um, is very... It's just it's way too pricey um, for me. And so I'm looking at cheaper alternatives. And I don't even care that much about 4K, but I'm kind of looking for something that's maybe a little bit more of a workhorse than necessarily a DSLR. I mean, I'm waiting to see what the GH5 will be and if anything big is happening there, you know. But for the most part, uh, the big thing here is it's pretty obvious that Sony only put, um, I don't know how to describe it, two scalers, uh, two video scalers inside of their camera. And so um, a video scaler is kind of like a chip that'll take one video input and mess about with it to make it fit another format. Uh, this is a common term for video switchers for live broadcast production. How many scalers you have kind of changes, well, how many cameras that don't match your output can you have, like a PC or other options like that. So how it comes into play with this camera is this camera only has like two. So one goes to the internal recorder, and then the other one would go to your viewfinder, your monitor. And, yep. you know, the scaler would jump between the resolutions or whatever color correction it needs to do, what have you. Um, and so there was such... I don't know necessarily say outrage, but yeah, yeah. A lot of people were very desperate. They're like, really? Like I want internal and external 4k. And they're like, well, if you're externally recording 4k, you're going to have an external monitor. So they went ahead and kind of put together the option that, okay, instead of using the built-in monitor, we can send the full 4k output with our scaler over to 
uh, you know, your external recorder so that you can do an internal and external recording if you're willing to live without that built-in monitor, which, like I said, most cases you would. So um, it, it's good to see that they're responding to the community and they're working within the hardware limitations. Uh, you can't ask a whole lot considering the price of this camera. I think, what is it, like about five grand, maybe five and a uh, half? Yeah, five, 5.5K. Without uh, any lens or accessories, so yeah. So I mean, for for the price, all that it's doing, uh, you know, that's great. The thing that I've seen is that if you shoot in 1080p, it looks great. You shoot in 4K, it seems to have some issues that kind of look like it's running lower bit rates. It's not. The bit rate should be able to handle 4K. I don't know where the holdup is. If it's in the image processor that they put in there or what, but. It seems to kind of look like a 5D Mark II. I know that sounds weird to say because the Mark II was like the big, you know, whatever. But um, the Mark II, like, had a blockiness issue where because of noise and everything else and mixing it with a codec wrapped in H.264 and all that kind of stuff. Well, and um, pixel bidding that was going on too on the sensor since they're gathering yeah. like multiple sites and like uh, scaling that out into a, a mathematical and, uh, algorithm. Yeah, and like, you know, doing very simple uh, subsampling and stuff like that. Uh, in, in this case, I don't know if that's what's going on. I don't know if it can be fixed, but if you zoom into a foot to the 4K footage from the FS5, you can, you know, end up seeing some macro blocking and stuff like that, which isn't great. Having external 4K means that you can bypass all that because the external recording of 4K looks brilliant. So it's not a sensor issue. Uh, it's either somewhere in the processor. Uh, or somewhere in the chip that is being recorded, whatever they're using for encoding in their um, AVCX or whatever codec they're using. I forget exactly what codec. But so that's something to keep in mind, too, that I'm keeping in mind because I've been looking at uh, this camera as possibly the next camera I'm going to purchase. Now, you DJ, mentioned on the, the other hand, doesn't care. You mentioned the C300, and uh, I wanted to point this out to folks that are uh, in the market for 1080p shooting, but they want the last year or the year before it is top of the line. If you look on eBay, man, the bottom has fallen out of the C100 and C300 market, and uh, you can find a Canon C300 used EF mount for, looks like here's a buy it now of... Four thousand four hundred and fifty dollars, yeah. with like six, uh, probably two hundred or hundred fifty dollar batteries and some CF cards. And, and you know, half the time that's just for an upgrade. People are dumping it because they're uh, they they want to upgrade to the Mark II because of that. Uh, all the new features that come with. It. I mean, the Mark II was a significant improvement. Uh, it's just disappointing that there was such a price cut that they aren't getting a whole lot for their money if they bought a Mark II at full price and are now trying to turn around, or, or a Mark I at full price and now trying to turn around and get a Mark II. It's really depressing that, uh, you know, you spend that much money on a C300. Well, I think the retail was like 15000 when it uh, hit the market, and now not much, not much further into the future, your investment has gone down $10,000 in value, and you're That's having never trouble. fun getting rid of it yeah so it's great for people buying used not so good for everybody else that owned the camera now well and it's still a great performing camera whatever you say about bit rates and everything else the c300 um is is producing great images and uh you know there's some use it, it's nicer the mark ii the light of buttons and all that kind of stuff but really even the mark one blows the you know blows something like a 5d mark three out of the water and uh, the ergonomics and everything else uh, can definitely be great if you want something bigger. I don't know, man. 
and I go back to this same uh, sorry complaint that you I have every time. Because you hate the C300. The C300 and the C100 <laughs> for the price have noisier footage than you get out of any of the other stuff. Wow, something just went crazy with uh, Yeah. There we go. I don't know oh, what you that fixed was. it. Oh, loose cable, <laughs> loose cable. No, both of those cameras, man, uh, they're, they're, they always preach like, this, this camera's great in low light, blah, blah, blah. And then you actually shoot with it and you realize like, wait a minute, this is not as good as they were selling me on. Like you shoot with the F or this, the Sony, uh, a7S and in low light, that thing is awesome. Amazing, does a great job, uh, even down to like 100,000 ISO. You shoot with the C100 or the C300 at, at that level, and you can see the noise crawling through your footage. It's, it's rough, it's tough, and like the image kind of goes weirdly gray. And like that was their huge selling point when they first got the C300 out is like, look at how great this is in low light. And I feel like they were kind of selling you a bill of goods. And then on top of that, to kind of pull back those features and what do you get in the difference between the C100, the C300 and the next generation, you get 4K footage and you get the AF sensor system that would or was available that actually as works. an upgrade for the C100 originally. Like it doesn't seem like they're being competitive with everything else that's on the market. So uh, Canon's kind of, I don't know, they, they've, they've lost me as a, a high-end buyer. Now, moving on down the line to more firmware updates, let's talk about the A7R and A7S Mark II. Uh, a few people have been experiencing issues uh, shooting 4K with uh, sensor overheating on the camera itself. Uh, that was especially prevalent in the A7R with its uh, high-resolution sensor. Um, apparently, a few complaints on the A7S, which is a little surprising, but uh, it's a, a thing. They've released the new firmware update, and supposedly the this curtails some of those issues. I don't know, Devin, what do you think about this? Is that uh, really frustrating for these cameras or kind of what you expect for the form factor? Uh, kind of what I expect. Um, I mean, the what was it? What was it before the A7S? It was the NEX5 or NEX7 that everyone was crazy about. Um, I remember that having some a few overheating issues, maybe not as bad as the uh, Canon EOS M. Uh, had huge issues with that, but the still, EOS M had. Wait a minute, are you sure about that? Uh, I I experienced one once or twice where I had to wait for it to cool down. Not as bad as the NEX seven, I think we were using. But anyways, still, uh, yeah. For some reason, these Sony seem to overheat a lot. I'm not surprised by that. I don't know if that's necessarily the form factor, um, or if it has to do with a combination of form factor and sensor size, or if it has to do with poor design. Um, cause a lot of other camera bodies have a lot more room for their magnesium bodies and kind of spreading heat out and stuff like that. That was a big thing. With the GH3 was the fact that GH3 was like, Hey, we built this whole body in order to keep our sensor cool. Uh, but they have a much smaller sensor to deal with than something like, um, the full frame you get on the a7s. So, uh, but it's one of those things that I, it's, it's something that's always made me cautious and being like, Oh, look at how great the a7s looks. And then me kind of being like, Hmm. You know, it's just it's it's I I don't feel like it's a workhorse. I it keeps it in my mind as a specialty camera, at least for me, and that's kind of disappointing uh, because so many people do use it as like the workhorse, the core of their video production. So, other than that, uh, since I haven't used the Mark II at all yet, I can't say if uh, this this is really that big of an issue or not. I've just heard stories. Well, the interesting thing about this is actually that uh, Sony, when they released the A7S and the original A7 series. Uh, they said they did not include 4K 
because they were dealing with overheating issues and they couldn't handle the thermal requirements for the small amount of space that they had in the A7. And if you've ever seen teardowns of the A7 and A7S, uh, it's mostly like glue and plastic and they don't leave a lot of room for anything else. I mean, every bit of the electronics boards are shoved in there as tightly as possible. And I almost wonder if they didn't really do much in the way of upgrading the chipset between camera bodies and simply mm, enabled yeah. it and it still had the same heat issues to deal with. But we're like, you know what? Caution to the wind. Let's keep the A7 series rolling and rolling over the competition. So uh, that may be the case. Um, as far as my original A7S, I've shot extensively in low light with it in various situations, hot and cold weather, and have yet to have overheating issues. When you mentioned the EOS M, um, I've had the EOS M, I still have one, uh, and the T2i, and both of those old cameras did overheat on me a few times, but it was <laughs> mostly um, my own fault. You know, it's like the middle of the summer, 80 or 90 degrees out, and I've been filming nonstop on them for entire uh, days straight. You know, then nah, they, that's inexcusable. No, no, no. Well, I mean, at some point, you got to realize, like, it's a, I, the 5D Mark II had some overheating issues too. If you if you shot for a long time in high temperatures, you'd get the weird like three beeps and then the camera would shut down. And so yeah. th that is a thing. Uh, but with this, I think Sony maybe with the A7 line in general has sacrificed the ability to to transfer heat out to the case for this ultra slim form factor. And they're paying for it now with these tweaks to the firmware. Um, I don't know... We'll have to wait and see whether or not the firmware is a permanent fix or not. But uh, the A7R has been notorious, even the original, for overheating for video footage. So, uh, both so it could are... be a huge welcome improvement for that. Things that um, we don't know if there's an overheating issue because they aren't available. The Ursa Mini 4.6K is what? out. What? That thing again? It's the footage. There's footage of it. And, you know, uh, none of it's in 4K. So <laughs> there's that. Um I'm excited about this camera. DJ is not, uh, but I'm going to go over it very lightly because, uh, once again, I haven't touched it or used it a whole lot. But the Ursa Mini, to me, is, like, right up there with the FS5. It's got – I see potential. Uh, I'm also cautious because, you know, all the other Blackmagic products that have come out in the camera line. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, when it comes to recorders um, – even their video switcher systems, uh, SDI routing systems, all that kind of back-end stuff, uh, Blackmagic doesn't seem to have any problem. Now, their their switchers are designed different than a lot of people, uh, than how a lot of them are done in the industry, and that's a love-it-or-hate-it kind of a thing, but they're stable, and they do their job every time you ask them to. Uh, their cameras, on the other hand, is one of these things where it's like, uh, you know, like I have a Blackmagic Pocket Cinema camera. It works, but, you know, we've always had issues with battery life, bad audio. Like it's always kind of been a, a hack together job. Why do I like or like the idea of an Ursa Mini? Uh, for one thing, a decent shoulder mount. Same reason why like the FS7 was a huge appeal to me as well as like a proper EVF. I like that form factor. It makes it really easy to get around, get the shots you need. I like the size of it, though. It's, you know, got a thinner profile. It's kind of like the size of an FS7, FS5, which I like better than necessarily the bulbous that is, you know, like a C300. So 
as well as having the removable grip and all that kind of stuff. Um, They've still kind of gone with that uh, whole DSLR form factor, though, with the side handle and grip. Uh, very, very yeah. similar to what Sony is doing. And I, I would credit Canon for kind of uh, pioneering that like twisty rosebud handle with the C100 and 300. It, it, yeah. it, it pulls to the DSLR form factor, am it, I right? It does. And that's, and that's I mean, when the C300 first came out, everyone was like, oh, it's like a DSLR that only does video. This is weird. Um, <laughs> but I, I think it's it's come down to, I, I still like it skinnier because I'm about shoulder mounting. And when you shoulder mount a C300, basically everything is like kind of butt up against your face, uh, depending on how you rig it. But uh, for me, uh, I, I'm really all about um, the, the combination of both. I think that's really the ergonomics that works for me. Everyone's different, but I want something that I can shoulder mount, and then I want something that's contained enough that I can kind of hold it like a DSLR when I need to, because there's tight shots, there's places where you're trying to shoot inside of a car and all kinds of other stuff that's going on, where that's what these cameras excel at, as opposed to something bigger if you've got, you know, a red rigged up or something like that, uh, you're, you're going to have a harder time getting around and getting the shots you need and getting them quickly. So I'm all about the form factor. I like the features. It looks like good quality. Now, once let's, again, though, let's be honest here, man. Price is a big factor, too, right? Oh, absolutely. Okay. I mean, the thing is, though, is that it, it, it seems like one of those black magic overselling and then underperforming like the pocket cinema camera. They're like, it does raw, but not right now. Um, well, how long ago was the Ursa Mini announced? Wasn't this two NABs ago? Maybe. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you're about right on that one. It was probably about two. So we've, they've been sitting on this for a while, and you can see that the 4K model uh, pricing is extremely attractive at $3,000, and it's still in pre-order coming soon. Uh, no available shipping dates on that. And the 4.6K, also in the same boat. And the price looks good, but if you don't have the camera in hand and you can't get a hold of it it's still kind of vaporware to me now right before i i i, I always rip on black magic for this sort of thing and i stopped like even really paying close attention to their firmware updates for their older cameras just because it doesn't even i mean it seems silly anymore but i want to talk about the footage because this is a little bit frustrating they're like here here is the new footage, a uh, bunch of Ursa Mini 4.6K footage that you can watch. And where do they host it? Vimeo. And I, <laughs> yes, um, and we're, we'll touch on this really quick. Vimeo did announce that they will be offering 4K streaming soon. Uh, they did, at the beginning of this year, offer uh, pro accounts uploads for 4K footage and downloads, but it was still rendered at 1080p for playback. Um, so we're looking at 1080p footage. Uh, that looks like yep. it's been heavily graded. Um, yep. They've done a very good job with it. It looks really nice. I've uh, spent a lot of time in DaVinci, really going through things and cleaning this stuff up and making it look beautiful. But how do you really know what's going on with this camera from these shots, Devin? You've watched all of this footage as well as I have. Uh, yeah. What do you think? <laughs> like, is it really um, a good representation? You know what? It's, it, it is a little bit. And there, once again, you say heavily graded. And maybe we don't it's know not exactly okay. Ha- it, I, I no, no, take no. that well, back. I have no idea if it's heavily graded. It just we, appears yeah. to be. It, it does appear to be heavily graded. Uh, to me, this looks, if you didn't tell me, especially with it being 1080p, uh, this looks exactly like the pocket cinema footage or any of the Blackmagic cameras. I think that it sounds weird, but they all uniquely look very much alike. And one thing that I've always really appreciated out of the the sensor is the fact that there is like zero 
um, how else do I describe it other than uh, chroma noise? Uh, all the noise that you get out of it, I mean, except when you go into in the high ISOs, which for Black Magic, a high ISO 1600. Yeah. Uh, but still, when you look in the shadows, you, I'm always seeing like uh, lumosity noise, which is kind of closer to what you know film is, if that's the look you're going for. And then at the same time, uh, when I'm shooting raw and things like that on the camera and I'm looking at the raw footage that comes out of it, uh, the highlights to me, the curve that they have built in for the sensor processing, whatever, the highlights seem to roll off very nicely, uh, just like the C300 does. So all these things considered, I'm like, uh, this looks like every other Blackmagic camera, and I don't hate that. Uh, what I usually hate is like missing features, uh, you know, black spot issues or whatever. Like, I, I hate that, like, technically there's so much usually broken with a Blackmagic camera, but the images always seem to be stellar, and it's like one of those, well, if you're willing to, you know, fight and put up with all the garbage, uh, you can get some really great images out of it. So, once again, we don't know how processed this is because, like, all this footage is coming out, and it's cool to see it being used in this way, uh, but it's not for somebody who's more actively looking for a camera and not just like looking, you know, is going to read past the pamphlet. Uh, we kind of want to see, well, what does log look like? You know, what is it's uh, rec uh, 709 look like? And, you know, how so like you have an idea of how you can use this camera in your workflow. So uh, I would like to definitely see a lot more of that. Um, and I'm sure that'll come soon. <laughs> it's just kind of like frustrating because there's a lot that I could really like about this camera, but I'm so wary because there's so much that's been wrong with their previous cameras. Uh, I just hope that they're spending the extra time not releasing it to make sure that they got everything right, um, at least at the hardware level. I mean, at this point with the world we live in, we can forgive software issues if they're addressed pretty quickly, kind of like Sony did with the FS5 and things like that. Uh, but... For something like this, I'm like, if they really kind of screw up the hardware here or there, if there's an overheating issue or something like that, at that point, I got to be done with Blackmagic because every every camera they've released has kind of been a struggle. So. Well, the other issue here for me, too, is we're waiting on these cameras to come from Blackmagic, and right now we're staring at cameras like the... Uh, JVC GYLS 300, uh, which is now down to $3,495, down from, I think, its original list of 5000 when it was first announced. And, I mean, you're, you're getting full, K, or full 4K footage. You're, you're getting a lot of good features. And these are really well-priced cameras. Now, on the other hand, you have Blackmagic, which always has really great specs. Every time you see a Blackmagic camera and you read the specs, you're just like, oh, those are amazing. And then, right. you know, you, you wait for all the rest of the stuff to sort of get flushed out. And don't get me wrong. Uh, they've done a really good job with their line and they've really disrupted the market coming through and and sort of uh, uh, hitting all of the things that people have been asking for from other camera manufacturers. But on the other side, you know, you don't get really amazing low light out of Blackmagic no. cameras. Uh, the JVC uh, LS300 that I'm I'm showing on screen right now, that guy, uh, it's good down to 1600 ISO. I mean, that's pretty good, and that's competing or probably exceeding what you'll end up getting out of the Ursa, Ursa Mini uh, 4K and 4.6K units. Uh, and then you have something like the FS5, which is what I think, uh, what I say, $5,500? And, you know, you pay a couple grand more, but now you're getting a camera 
that is capable of shooting into the uh, 3200 or uh, 12,800 12, ISO. Uh, those are good numbers. Uh, you know, that's a little more impressive. And uh, for the market these are aimed at, where people are, or they're not just shooting in wonderful daylight all the time. They're, you know, yeah. they're all over the place. You're going to want to have a little bit more uh, range there. Uh, and, I know and you can true. get a little bit That's... more dynamic range out of DNG, and people argue, well, 1600 is a lot <laughs> more important because you can get so much more dynamic range out of raw DNG files. And that's, I mean, arguably that's true, but... Have you ever sat down and had to futz around with uh, freaking raw DNG footage? It's not like working with red code raw footage. You don't just have this like easy interface and a LUT that follows your your clips around. You have freaking raw DNG individual frames that you're worried about syncing up audio, all the other hassles, and then you know DaVinci. Uh, it is they've given it away for free with their cameras. It's awesome, but. Devin, back me up here. It's a bit of a bear to use. Am I not wrong here? Plus drawing out uh, masks on everything and all the other work that you could just spend hours and hours sort of photoshopping <laughs> your footage. Yeah, if you're, I mean, if it, it depends on what it calls for. And uh, for a lot of situations, um, going that deep into color and like, it's not necessary 90% of the time. If you are working on what could potentially be like an award-winning short film or a feature-length film that's going to, you know, reach huge markets, then yeah, you hire a guy who's good at that stuff and he sits there and he dials away at it. For a lot of shooters, uh, especially if you're doing like documentary or news or something like that, you don't have time. That's not where you're going to spend your money because uh, your time is your money. And so therefore... Uh, you know, people who are like, oh, there's more range when you go raw and everything else. I think to myself, that is the, the equ equivalent of saying we'll fix it in post. Uh, because most of the time, just like when the Secudo had that big shootout and they're like, the GH2 looks just as good as an Aerie Alexa. Yeah, because the guy um, spent like, what, five hours, you know, perfectly lighting everything right. with uh, thousands of dollars worth of lighting. I mean, if and you I'm have not, the time, you right. can make anything look really good. And I'm not saying that you need to, uh, you know, spend your entire day lighting one shot. But lighting is so huge, and if you can get your entire image within four or five stops of exposure right in the middle of the camera sensor... The sweet uh, spot. The sweet spot, uh, you're going to have a brilliant image on any camera. And most of the time, achieving that isn't that hard. It's a bounce board, it's a scrim, it's a light here or there. Well, and this it is actually something, uh, and Devin and I, like, be, be, between shows, we actually talk on a regular basis, and we were kind of discussing this earlier before we even started the show. It's like, hey, listen, man, you know, if you're shooting in a studio environment and you know what all your lights are that you're working with, you can just set them to the proper Kelvin balance, and you don't even have to worry about a white balance. I mean, you know that you're in a controlled environment. You only have one type of light source, and it, you're good to go. But it, the same thing doesn't necessarily apply if you go out into the real world and you're shooting in multiple light source environment and your image is looking a little green, a little yellow, a little brown, you know, go freaking get a, a gray card and get your white balance yeah. set, you know? No, no, absolutely. And that's something else, too, that I find lots of people with white balance. Um, they'll, I hear people talk about fixing white balance in post, and it's one thing if you shoot raw, but if you're shooting... 8-bit, even 10-bit 
uh, you need to make sure your white balance is right the first time because you are dumping data when you go to any kind of format that's not raw. And while people are like, oh, I can warm it up in post, it is not the same. You can push it around a bit, but you're going to start getting some really weird image effects if you push too yeah, hard on that. Uh, it, it, not even that. Like, even if you've got good 10-bit footage that you could push places, uh, when you start, like, shifting uh, the color space like that laterally, I guess is the best way I can describe it. Or I guess on a vector scope, it'd be like clockwise or something. But Yeah, twisting it. But if you're actually pushing the image like that, you're going to notice that certain materials react differently with different kinds of light hitting them. And so therefore, just subconsciously, there's going to be something about that image that's going to be off and you're not going to be happy with it. So always set your white balance (laughs) properly. (laughs) Yeah, I guess where I'm going is like uh, maybe raw isn't the solution for all of us. And and chasing a camera that's $3,000 for the raw aspect might not be the best way to go for everybody. Um, the Blackmagic cameras do look attractive. Hopefully they are released at some point in the future. Right. And uh, we can actually get our hands on them and they're fully baked and not half baked. But until then, there are so many cameras out there. And I tell this to everybody that ever asked me for camera recommendations because I get emails all the time that are like, hey, DJ, what is the best camera that I should buy that's coming <laughs> out? Should I wait for this camera? Should I wait for that camera? And honestly, the camera that you have in your hand is the camera that's the best camera because you're going to go out and shoot with it. And if you're not shooting with your cameras, then it doesn't matter how much you lust for the next camera. Uh, Having it sitting on a shelf somewhere, gathering dust, does not a filmmaker make. So keep that in mind. (laughs) Uh, Also, Devin, we've talked about this guy before, and I always forget his name, but I mentioned it in the last episode. I couldn't remember, and a few people emailed me asking about it. What's the name of that European uh, filmmaker that works on a T2i and a 30-millimeter F1.4 exclusively? and it's it's like he said he has lots of great stuff out there uh uh are you talking about uh, i think it's is is his name fletcher or something i don't i couldn't remember either man it's it's oh my god you know why i I can't think of it he hasn't uploaded something in i think like six months it's been a really long time um but i know what you're talking about and i wish i wish i could remember it but it is a weird name and my youtube subscription list is like about 300 so it take me too long to go through and try to remember which one it is but um yeah he produces really great images and um he's talked a bit about uh you know using denoisers and stuff like that getting the most for his image um yeah, I can't. I can't remember it. I can't remember it at all. All right, moving on down the line. Anyways, then, let's I'm move on. Forget about that one. And uh, okay, you put this in the l- rundown, and I kind of don't know what's going on here. So I'm gonna uh, throw it over to you. This sure. is the Flex Lights. Uh, I've seen these before. I know Westcott makes some good stuff. They have some really nice uh, foot, one foot by one foot panels. Uh, that are available for a fairly substantial amount. But um, <laughs> what's going on here? You, you This is back- more expensive lights. No, this is, um, if you remember, there was a Kickstarter for the uh, rag light, which they had a cinematography version for like $500. Yeah, yeah. Okay, this is the same concept, um, except that this is more rigid. It's using what could best be described as like um, uh, bendable pipes. Uh, around the frame or something like that. So it's still flexible. It's still mostly moldable, but it will hold itself up, which is kind of nice. Compared to the previous ones, which were sort of flappy, and if you wanted to support them, you needed to use like a wire frame of some kind. Right, right. 
So, uh, but these have been huge. Everyone has really been very interested in flex lights for their weight, their size, and Westcott makes the kind, of course, that have great output and great CRI, uh, color rendering index, how good the whites are. So, uh, this is just one of those where I was surprised because when I finally saw the news that it was, hey, they're like actually now shipping these things, uh, I went and checked and it was already back ordered. So it seems like a lot of people are um, uh, really interested in these lights or a lot of people are buying them for Christmas. I don't know. Yeah, it looks um, like uh, they are back in stock again here on B&H. Four, uh, 1500 bucks though, man. So what's great about these and the Flexlight movement in general is imagine what you can light because now you're not just limited to, well, I've got a stand over here and I've got a stand over there. Now you can shove your lights into, uh, you know, backlit surfaces. You can put them behind things. Well, and it's, you could do that before, but this is multiple levels. It's multiple levels of that. I mean, the flexibility as a bit of a game changer in terms of mounting options. Oh no, you didn't just drop the game changer. (laughs) changer. It's a game changer. It's a game changer. Everybody. We can't stop now. LED lights in general, uh, LED has been a game changer is what I should better phrase it as just because, uh, with less wattage, you're talking about almost any light in your kit can be portable, which is something that just didn't exist five years ago. Um, and then two, uh, compared to like, uh, CFLs, even like your, um, your flow lights and everything else, uh, the CRI you can achieve with LED can be a lot greater than even some highly rated um, CFLs or uh, fluorescent tubes or what have you. And you combine the fact that they're small, they're skinny, they produce almost no heat, they don't need giant heat sinks or anything like that, and they're battery-powered means that really your mounting options depends on, you know, how creative you are. So uh, this is kind of becoming, the Westcott is becoming a premier line of these super flexible lights, but even for less getting LED light panels that you can fit inside of a car or, you know, against a wall or something like that. And the fact that they're battery powered and they're so light too means too that most of the time you don't need a bazillion C stands to set up all your lights and you don't need a generator in order to run all of your lights, uh, you know, depending on how long you're planning on running them and everything else. But uh, for the most part, uh, these guys like one by twos, one by ones, these are bicolor. They come with uh, diffusion as well and scrims, and the diffusion helps so you don't get any multi-shadow issues. Uh, to me, it's just these ch- kind of change the way that lighting is done. You combine that with the fact that cameras are getting better at low light with bigger sensors like um, the 7S and all that kind of stuff. I know everyone is like, oh, dude, 7S, you don't need to light your scene. I think if you want a good image, you still need to craft the light. That's part of what you do as a DP is your crafting light. So if your job is just like, I bought a camera where I don't have to craft light, then I'm like, well, it's not going to look very no, good, No, no, yeah, so. but <laughs> the advantage for ultra low light shooting cameras is that you need minimal light sources. So, you right. know, if you want a light, and I, I mean, it's escaping me the name of the product. We talked about it a couple weeks ago, and I have a similar LED panel, like a just a real small one. I think it's called a Kick. And those little guys, they're, you know, it's a hundred bucks. It's a a light panel the size of your cell phone. And it puts out enough light that with the A7S, you know, in low light situations, you can literally light your scene with like three or four of these little tiny 
uh, LED light panels that take up almost no space in your bag, don't require much. And of course, you know, I don't take the A7S out for uh, bright daylight shooting or anything else where I'm not going into the dark, which basically is all I save the A7S for. But uh, it's really awesome and liberating to be able to light a scene with, you know, three or four really tiny lights. Or imagine this, like, uh, surely these flex lights don't have you know, 500 watt equivalent output, you know, or, or anything no. in that nature. It's a fairly, it, it, well, uh, let me back up. The LEDs in general don't <laughs> have a, a huge throw. So the, the, at three meters, their light may be equivalent to say a 500 watt halogen bulb or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you go outside of that three meters, the fall off is pretty exponential. I, you know, uh, what is it, I squared? Not I squared R. That's uh, electricity. It's a uh, <laughs> meter squared. Yeah, thank you, meter squared. So you back away from that, and suddenly your throw is is not there for these light sources anymore. But now, mm-hmm. if you're shooting with a camera that's shooting in the dark, basically, I mean, uh, three or four of these laying around, and you could really fill up your scene with light. You could really craft your your scene with light. And the other cool thing is that when you're shooting at those high ISOs you can make the light changes more dramatic with less work. So if I want to dim a section of a set of lights, I can literally go get a piece of paper, lay it over a portion <laughs> of the lights, and bam, I have diffused and reduced the light for a square section of my shot, which makes it extremely nice. Well, and with. it's not its not even that. It's, uh, it, it's also combined with the fact that uh, when you're doing low-light shooting, um, the... Even if even if you're not doing low light shooting, these LED lights, uh, it's not just the panels. It's the fact that these are coming into full fixtures. You're getting Fresnels that have these uh, LEDs in them, and that's getting you that other end of the spectrum. If you want harsh light, you want harsh yeah, shadows. Yeah, you want and strong like shadows. That. Which, don't quote me, but I think that that's probably where people are going to start moving to in a year or two. Because now that LEDs have come out, and they're all so beautiful and so soft... It's going to be like, to me, I feel like it's going to be like the slider where everyone's going to do it for a few years. And then the people that actually start crafting their light more and start adding more shadows and having like higher ratios on the face in terms of the bright side and the fill side and everything else, um, those are going to start to look more interesting uh, to potential clients as well as cinematographers and stuff like that. Because right now it's so cheap. I feel like everyone this year or next year will be buying up LEDs and all the lights going to be big and it's going to be soft and it's going to look really lovely and beautiful, but that's not going to work if you're trying to like make a horror film and like, I don't know, man, I'm going to, I'm going to say that the initial investment on these is not cheap at all. Like, uh, compared to traditional lighting sources, uh, I would say LED lights in general are roughly four to five times the cost of traditional lighting schemes. So that part's not as affordable. Uh, How much are Kino flows? I feel like Kino flows are the same price. Oh man, they fall through panel. the floor. You can go buy a bunch of used Kinos for nothing. I mean, it's <laughs> super cheap. It, it's it costs more to to ship them and transport them than it does to buy them outright and sell <laughs> them again. Uh, the where I see LEDs really coming into their own is uh, with these more uh, high contrast light sources that are available and focusable light sources. Keyword there. Um, mm-hmm. They're going to be installed in fixed installations like movie theater, or well, uh, not movie theaters, but playhouses and so on, and things where mm-hmm. you have like live performances going on all the time. Because if you think about what the advantage is with an LED, if you can get the same quality of light source 
out of an LED light, you've A, reduced the heat, which means now you can handle these a lot easier than you would before. The bulbs are easier and you don't have to worry about them uh, being super sensitive to vibration and movement. So you can have these on panning systems, control systems, and so on. And the electrical infrastructure needed for these lights in those theaters has been reduced substantially. Because uh, you think about uh, the equivalent uh, output of light for an LED, it's like a quarter of the wattage required for a regular incandescent light source. So now you have hardly any heat and you have the same output and you're using a quarter of the wattage. I mean, that means that a theater could reduce their current intake for the entire installation from, you know, like a 400 uh, amp panel down to like a 120 amp panel or 100 amp panel and be completely accessible for handling all of their infrastructure as far as lighting is concerned. And that's a huge cost savings, a huge savings in terms of like HVAC and cooling for the building itself and all the other things. I mean, if right. I were a it, producer, like just looking at this long term, two years of service, if I don't pay this much in power, the five times in cost is totally worth it. Just go for it. Don't even worry about it, you know? Well, and that's and that's why all of Los Angeles switched over to LED streetlights. Yeah, and I mean, I'm diving into the minutia, but these are the things like if you are a producer uh, of a play, for example, or some sort of theatrical event, uh, man, you can really save some freaking money. <laughs> On this yeah. sort of stuff. Plus, you know, again, lighting controls and, and so on. You don't have to be as uh, as cautious with your major movements and so on with the lights if you're not using something with a freaking filament that can, you know, go out on you in a, in a pan or a tilt or whatever. Uh, there's a whole bunch of really cool stuff with this. But LEDs, these are interesting. I wouldn't mind having some, but for $1,400... Probably not going into DJ's collection anytime soon. Uh, moving on, we got a couple things left, and actually, this show is about the right yeah. length. Um, do you want to talk about the FAA uh, laws on drones, Devin? Because I mean, uh, basically, if your drone falls between a weight class of like what two hundred and fifty ounces up to uh, like five hundred and fifty ounces, somewhere in that range, you have to register now and basically pay yep. like a fee of some yep. kind. Yeah, for the basically, if it can carry a GoPro, it's probably in the weight class where you need to pay thirty bucks, and you should just pay thirty bucks and get it done. They're they're not they're not out to destroy your you know give you a bad time. They're just out to make sure that you read the rules and uh, they have you know, someone to come after when they find your drone on the White House lawn. Sure. Well, I mean, but you can always, you know, tag somebody else's number on it and everything else. It's like this doesn't stop anything. All all this is really doing is just making people more aware of the rules so that there is reasons to prosecute for stupid activity like, um, you know, flying by airports and things like that that you shouldn't be doing anyways. Well, and there's a great uh, video I just saw on YouTube uh, earlier today. I think it was posted on uh man no film school maybe and it was a drone uh slicing fruit um, <laughs> they were just dropping fruit onto the top of the propeller blades and, and that kind of gives you uh food for thought on how dangerous these could be to civilians people's eyes and so on so you know caution of course uh it is unfortunate mm -hmm. that you will now have to register uh drones this is preemptive so if you have a drone already that fits into this category you have to register it. Also, um, I'm not sure how you they will handle it for children because if you buy one for like your 16-year-old kid, it's his drone. Do you put your number on it or do you put his number on it 
or do you have your kid register all your drones? So if something happens, he's under the age of prosecuting, you know, <laughs> under 18 and you're safe. I don't know. Oh, I mean, that's, that's exactly it. Like this, this it's isn't, a gray. The, it's not even just a little gray, like I said, uh, and the prosecution for it's going to be like non-existent. I feel like it's just going to come down to like, we're basically making sure you read the rules and each operator gets one number and they put it on all their drones. And that's the idea. So, yeah, and I mean, like if you don't put your number on there and you do something stupid, and then you just run away, right? Right. Well, you you run away, and the you know let's and hope that they don't track it back to you somehow. They they get to charge you extra fees uh, on top of arresting you for whatever you shouldn't have been doing with a drone. That's all. It's just it's 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 paperwork, and it's not that much. And you should just pay it and make sure that you're fine with it because uh, the last thing you need is um, you know more problems. So all right. Moving on. Last thing on the list here, and I actually, Devin, you put this in there. I saw it. I thought it was I interesting. Can. And you, sir, were like, what? You even care about this thing? So this <laughs> this arm right here is, is sort of a weird device. Uh, it's basically a arm that attaches to your slider. And I'm trying to bring up images here, but for some reason, I'm not sharing the correct ones because, boy, DJ is good at this today. Um, <laughs> it's an arm for your slider. And you can see that it attaches to your slider. It gives you sort of a little bit of crane action. It's not really something that's movable, but it does give you some uh, camera position ability. Now, before I start talking about why I think this is actually fairly decent for $169, Devin, shoot this down. Shoot it in the foot. Tell me why it sucks. <laughs> um, I, I, don't, I don't see that much of a point. To me, it's, I understand what it's doing. Uh, there's been several products that have been like, hey, your dolly's in the shot. You should, you know. And hold on a second. For the audio listeners, this is oh. the Cinevate Grip Reacher, which, <laughs> which, which is a can stupid be name, best by described, the way. Best described as, um, uh, I'd say maybe a boom an arm eight, for an your... eight inch, yeah, an eight inch boom for mounting your camera uh, to a slider. So the boom goes on the slider, the camera goes on the boom, and it has slightly more reach. So uh, I just I have trouble seeing where it is terribly useful. Uh, I feel like there's been other products in this category, uh, maybe not ones as convenient or with as many flexible options. But I kind of how, how do I describe this? It's like it, it's like you could go on eBay and spend 20 bucks and build one of these yourself out of 15 millimeter rods. Uh, it's just there's nothing necessarily innovative here this looks like something you could just go to the camera department and say hey i need the camera kind of over in this direction all right well let's hook up a few things and get it over in that direction so maybe for the solo shooter or somebody who doesn't have a lot of equipment this could be a way to get the camera in a position uh that's more usable for you but even they themselves don't show a whole lot of use cases for it they go oh you can mount your camera upside down so it's closer to the ground um or I guess you could also then, like, if it's on a ledge, you could mount it even lower. It, and you could make it face down, and you could extend it past the dolly tracks so that you don't see the slider in the shot. Uh, but all these things, I'm like, oh, I've seen one or two products like that before. Like, And then combined with the fact that, like, it's just a few 15-millimeter hinges and a 15-millimeter carbon fiber rod, and then there's no counterweight system either, so you really have to be light on this guy. I mean, they, they show, like, a 1DC on it, but they uh, I don't think that 1DC uh, is fully extended, and if it is, it's not hanging. 
now, if that makes sense. Here's why I like the idea. And I'm, I'm going to tell you right now that I think $169 is a bit overpriced for this. But I, I will say that in Cinevate's defense, they do make some really good stuff. They had a, a rig a while back called the Medusa rig, which was based off of the Ram mount ball systems that are, it's pretty cool. Uh, it was also overpriced because you can go buy the Ram mount balls for their given price instead of paying like a double or triple markup. Now, that said, the reason I think this is really cool is because what is one of the issues you run into with a good slider? Well, number one is seeing the slider in the freaking shot. That is always an issue with sliders, especially if you're moving forward or backward. So having an arm that extends over the top of it, that's great. You can also raise up your camera viewing platform to a, a higher level without having to use some kind of weird, wacky stand. And I do have a weird, wacky stand that I normally use to get the camera up high enough. And it gives you a few more angles for product shots and for moving across things. So I like that. Now, I'm looking on eBay right now. And uh, <laughs> Devin is absolutely right. Uh, this is by no means probably the quality that you get out of Cinevate. But for $24, here is pretty much the equivalent. And if I were to do probably another hour or two worth of research... I'm sure I could probably cobble together uh, something that would have a quarter 20 on both sides, uh, get your camera out to that sort of platform and allow you similar flexibility, probably in the 50 to $75 price range. It's similar. Well, quality. and on top of it too, without a counterweight system. Yeah. You can't uh, go very I wonder, far. I Well, and I wonder how well, I mean, a few of their product shots, they show that they throw a few weights on the slider itself to keep the feet planted. Um, but without the counterweight system, I see it maybe not exactly reacting well on the rails, depending on the slider you have. I'm sure with Cinevate slider, high-quality components like that, it can probably take the abuse of the center of weight being that far off. But I've used a few cheaper sliders before. I've used some sliders that are really good, but they need to be balanced. And you throw something this unbalanced on one of those sliders, and it's going to, like, you know, grind and bump and not be happy with uh, how far off it is in terms of getting your smooth shot. So uh, understand that too, if you are looking at buying something like this, is that depending on the slider design, because there's just friction sliders, there's bearing sliders, there's lots of different kind of sliders. Um, and that it may not work great if you throw the weight that far away from, you know, the wheels. Now, this is the, the thing that it immediately got me thinking about. And I've talked about this once or twice over the years, and I love this device. It's called the poly, uh, uh, I think the, po the poly system, poly slider. I, I think it's the poly slider. I'm going to go with the poly slider here, but, uh, it's basically like a flywheel sort of system. But the cool thing, if you ever see the poly slider in action, great for car, by the way, uh, car shots and any sort of moving product shots is it's got this beautiful arm that does the exact same thing. It gives you all this position ability. And then the base of the poly slider is so heavy that it holds itself in place. Now I haven't picked one of these up because they are, uh, roughly $2,500 for the entire <laughs> kit, which, uh, you know, for the number of shots I need, it probably wouldn't be justifiable, but it, sure. They're super sexy. You still have to have this on a track or a very smooth surface, but having that arm reach, uh, maybe something like what we're seeing from Cinevate with the combination of a counterweight system to balance it out and maybe an extra extension arm that would give you like a knuckle for a few more degrees of flexibility. Uh, that combination would probably be the sweet spot for me. And then 200 bucks to add to a slider I already love and use, like my Shark S1, for example, would be great. Now, the only problem with that and this in general is that 
when you start adding weight to sliders like that, they tend to not work quite as well. And the beauty of the shark slider, for example, is that it has the flywheel system built into it. And if you are overweighing the flywheel with that sort of thing, uh, you can run into some issues. Now, sure. Another thought too, if you're looking to spend over a hundred dollars on repositioning your camera, I haven't used one of these, so I don't give it an endorsement, but uh, I've had my eyes on it, um, and I'm sure there will be knockoffs of the Eldercron Flex Tilt Head. All it does is give you three inches of height slash tilt on your camera, uh, but it's just one of those things that can grab you, um, uh, move the camera higher, move it over your dolly shot or whatever else you're doing, and it's going to be a little bit more balanced. It doesn't have quite the range, but it's just another option. If you are interested in something like this for, uh, you know, some way to get your camera away from your dolly. So that's something else to consider too. I think I saw one of these on They're 24 bucks, dude. Yeah. Yeah. Like so, I said, there's knockoffs galore, um, knockoffs galore, but, uh, I'll tell you, know, you the they problem, were the first, the problem with the Eldercron <laughs> unit and even the, their clones, uh, is the grip system. So if you'll notice in their videos that it's like, oh, hey, look at how beautiful and smooth this moves. And I mm-hmm. think Devin's even got the video playing here. They're they're just moving it around and it's no big deal. And yep. it's sort of staying in place. Well, that is a 100% friction system. So, yeah. you know, uh, they show you getting that sort of performance out of it. But in practicality, and I've messed around with a few of these, I have a couple friends that got suckered into buying these right out of the chute. And they worked great for the first few rounds, but well, with that face, um, <laughs> they worked great for the first few rounds. Uh, but uh, as soon as they uh, started, like, kind of tweaking them and moving them a bit and putting a little bit of weight on their cameras using something a little bit bigger than, say, a T2i, it was starting to like uh, lose its traction and fall over or slowly drift yep. downwards. And that's frustrating. Maybe something like this with a rosette at each of those locations would be oh, yeah. a great way to sort of uh, find a balance between the two. And I'm looking on eBay right now, and I'll share my screen. There are a ton of clone slash knockoffs <laughs> of this of all varieties. So, you know, my statements about the Eldercron unit they probably persist with these other versions, but I do see a few yeah. that have uh, some different sort of adapting points and different friction systems. So maybe, hopefully, possibly, somebody has fixed the issues with the original. Actually, this this guy, this is a little bit, a little bit different take on the whole system. Uh, still looks like it might suffer from the same. See, but that one's only got one friction point for every uh, uh, joint. Yeah, that's true. So, I mean, this this is one of those things where it probably ships with, like, nylon washers in it, and that's why it works great for the first month, and then after that starts to fall apart. So, um, but it's just, this is another way of getting your camera somewhere else if you've got a small light camera, uh, as well as, like, you know, boom arms and stuff like that. Like you said, like, kind of what I was saying, you go to the grip department, you're like, I need my camera over here. Uh, there's lots of little pipes and things, but that you, you want it over here, here on a slider <laughs> and you don't have the money to spend on like a big dolly with an actual crane arm and counterweight and all that right. stuff. Cause I mean, really, you know, even a small dolly track and wheels and, uh, uh, a proper uh, crane type of deal attached to your running plate. You're, you're talking even like a, a several grand to rent for a week. 
if not more, plus the setup time and then the transportation to get everything from one location to the other. So, you know, if you could do something like this on the cheap and on the small, it would be sexy. No, no, I mean, and that's part of the advantage of working with DSLRs and smaller cameras, as much as I was just praising, you know, Ursa Minis and everything else, is that uh, when you have a package that small, all your support equipment gets super small, and you start to get to the point where, like, uh, you know, uh, steady cam operation. Steady cams used to only be a giant vest, a giant camera with a giant battery, and a lot of training. And then DSLRs came along, and people were doing steady cams handheld because it was so light. Maybe they weren't doing two hours of holding it handheld, but still, uh, that was that was these counterweight systems and everything else became super light. Anyone could hold it at least for you know a five minute shot or something like that, um, and that totally changed up uh, how a lot of this stuff works. And it's the same way here. So. And that's why dollies became a thing. All these little tiny cheap dollies would never work with the larger cameras we used to have. But the DSLR revolution has totally changed the way we think about moving our cameras and uh, creating motion. I don't know, man. I mean, I shot on DV back in the day on an XL1 and a GH1. Uh, not the or gl1 not, not to brag the, not the canon one no this isn't bragging those were <laughs> those were shitty cameras i back mean they were awesome mind, back in the day but they're, they're those were little enough that i think a slider for like a dslr now would have worked great but honestly we didn't they have were linear light. bearing options uh for sliders in this budget price range back then because it just wasn't it wasn't important for companies to manufacture stuff that was designed for that small of an application because people weren't doing super professional things with that. I mean, right. Yeah. You could change out lenses on the XL one, but it was pretty primitive. And I mean, uh, original DV tape, uh, you know, (laughs) one to one ingestion of your footage, Mm -hmm. uh, wait till you shoot 24 tapes and then you have to spend 24 hours freaking eating that stuff up and getting on the computer. So I, I don't know. I guess yeah. I, I Dude, that's that's what you know what that's I that's the unspoken thing that's really changed is uh, uh, documentary work reality shows and everything else with like six cameras. Oh, my God. That's something that would have just been a nightmare with tapes. Well, and it's super it's really nice now with stuff like pluralize like. Uh, oh, yeah. A, a couple months ago, I was on a, a three camera shoot and we shot three cameras all day long. And it was really simple to just drop everything into Pluralize, uh, get XML time codes for everything, drop it into Premiere, and it just lined all my footage up and used multicam editing to go through quickly and like sort of rough cut everything together. I can't believe how easy it is. Like it's mind blowing. Yeah. No, my it's, mind it's just went. To- as I was doing it, like, this is great. What? Post, post-production post has totally changed and has just gotten faster and better. Have you seen an audition? We're way sidetracked at this point, <laughs> but real quick. In audition, uh, do you see that audition now will automatically truncate music files for you? Yeah. Yeah, that is really nice. And like, uh, you think it does about some time it. stretching and stuff as well, so you can... You can even like warp time uh, stretch without pitch shifting. So you can make a song longer if you need to, to stretch out to fill a a gap. No, no, no. I'm talking about it will cut measures out and restructure the whole song. Oh, really? Yeah. In the newest update, uh, 2015.2, if you updated your audition, uh, you can find videos online. This was one of the big features they included, but you can say, Hey, take this three-minute song and make it a two-minute song, and it'll actually understand measures and chord structure and everything else and pull out chunks. I can turn a three-minute song into 30 seconds. And so this 
this for me has changed up because now I can always kind of make sure my music is matching kind of the duration of the video. I mean, uh, for storytelling purposes, like a composer's great, everything else, getting that all lined up. But sometimes all you're doing is like, hey, we're at the flower show and here's what's going on at the flower show. And okay, see you later. And on those kind of videos, you're like, you just want the music to end on cue just to wrap it up nicely. And you don't want to sit there for half an hour cutting chunks out and sizing it and doing all that work. This thing will do it in seconds. Man, I'm going to have to mess around with that because uh, one of the composers I work with, and he does a great job. I'm not going to call you out, man, because you always do a great job for us. But sometimes he gets to this point where he's kind of tired of redressing his stuff. Because, you know, mm-hmm. when I'm when I'm working with him on a film, and I, I've worked with him on a number of films, he's a great, great composer. But he basically generates like a core set of, of songs, uh, you know, 12 or 14 songs for a feature. They kind of set the tone of the feature and then he just sort of tweaks them and squeezes them down or like cuts sections apart and moves them back together again uh, to sort of accommodate all the scenes in the film. And that's fine, but it's really rough on him and he kind of gets grumpy about it. And I end up having to do (laughs) a lot of the remixing of his stuff in order to, to get things to fit where I want them to. And if I could just say, all right, give me this track and i'll take care of it and then drop it into audition and it would intelligently figure out a way to you know a stretch something out longer or b uh, compress something into just the minute uh sort of essence of the song for a a scene that would be really cool i was when you mentioned uh stretching and truncating i was thinking of the time stretch features because i use those on a regular basis if i'm like oh well the song is 30 seconds short and I could push the 30 seconds, slow the tempo down just a little mm-hmm. bit, but keep the pitch by time stretching without pitch shifting. And you can uh, sometimes no, this, like, make this something This thing's work. magic. I mean, just for fun, like grab a Katy Perry song and like turn it into 30 seconds. And you're like, oh, that's exactly what somebody would cut for a commercial. Wow. I mean, it's, it, you know, it may not be perfect. It may like double up a measure or two where you like, oh, you should have switched to a chorus instead of switching to a measure. But considering that this thing does it in seconds, if you're just on the run and you're like, I just, I need it this long, you can even choose how accurate to, because it'll then also do time stretching on top of that. If you're like, I need you to hit 33 and a half seconds exactly, you can tell it, do it exactly. You give it some leeway, it'll try to make it sound better and like by plus or minus a second or two. So, um, really fun, really fun to play with. Uh, DJ found his new, his new thing to do tonight. Yeah, actually, I'm going to be busy <laughs> messing around with this Chromecast, and I think that's a good stopping point. We've covered quite a bit this episode. Um, I do want to mess with that, though, by the way. That's uh, super sexy. <laughs> um, guys, basically, you know the drill. This is DSLR Film New Podcast. You can find us on iTunes, all those things. But Devin, where can people find you? Yeah, you can just find me on Twitter at DevoCut, uh, where you can, you know, uh, tell me that I did a bad job recording the time markers for the episodes, and uh, I'll apologize profusely. Devin does a great job, by the way, folks, and he works very hard on the show notes for me when I don't have time. So thanks, man, for doing a great job. <laughs> Everybody, make sure you swing over to his Twitter and subscribe, click, uh, follow, or whatever. Uh, on that note, uh, you can find this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, anywhere else uh, podcasts are distributed. Make sure you rate, like, subscribe, and swing over to iTunes and write a review because that helps us in the rankings and brings in more listeners like you. Also, send in your questions. You can find links to where questions can go in the show notes as well as posting them on YouTube 
Or if you're an audio listener, just follow the links in the descriptions and you can get to the show notes and all the other things that are available that we work hard on so that you can enjoy the show better. We will see you next time on another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. Enjoy your Christmas. I think Devin might actually come back for a couple more Christmas episodes. So of course. Thanks, Devin. Of uh, course. Mitch is super busy with Christmas stuff. So we'll catch up with him next year. But maybe one or two more shows <laughs> with Devin before the end of the year. We'll see you next time.